that. Anyway, tonight we are considering the leadership of Christ. We began that a couple a week or so ago. And I don't know about you, but the more I learn about Jesus, the more I love him. And I've been walking with him now for quite a few years. And it gets better and better and better. And I just love him so much. But our text tonight, again, is Matthew 11, verse 30. Anybody like to read that, please? Thank you, Dan, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, again, I know we've kind of hashed this over several times, but who is saying that? Who is making that statement? Indeed. And it's interesting. Uh, I guess the question I want to ask again is, is Jesus talking about a literal yoke or symbolic? Symbolic. We know what a literal yoke is and we know what what it was used for. Uh, But the idea is, whichever animals you yoke up together are expected to work out. Together, right? If it's going to work, they've got to work together. And so what we're talking about tonight is our submission and our service to Christ. Now, I think we mentioned this last week as well, and even though we probably didn't know this, but uh, there's only two masters, either Satan or Christ. And so because there's only two, if you're not serving one, guess what? You're serving the other. Now, Satan himself, uh, he wants us to believe or try to convince us that serving him was a lot more fun, a lot better. Uh, wow, just, just what we need to do. But the sad thing is, before you know it, we find out there's only pleasure in sin for a season. And the way of the transgressor is hard. Now, by the way, uh, Satan is a liar. And he's not just a liar, he's what? Father of lies, which means what? Yeah. <laughs> Every lie begins with him. Find his foundation in him. And sin is that way. Uh, sin will deceive us. Uh, sin will convince us that we are enjoying liberty as long as we just follow the desires of the flesh. But again, that only lasts for a season. Because if we continue to follow sin, it will take us farther than we ever planned to go, and it will always cost us more than we ever wanted to pay. So without a doubt, sin is a horrible taskmaster, and it takes its toll upon those who are caught up in it. Now, it's interesting, and we've been in this area of Matthew 11 for several weeks now, and Jesus uh, invites us to take his yoke upon us. And he tells us after that that his yoke is easy and his burden light. Now think about that. Now remember, a yoke requires how many partners? Participants. Two, all right? So if we get in one side of the yoke, spiritually speaking, who's in the other side? Jesus says, okay? Take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, remember from a few weeks back, 
This is the invitation for those who have been heavy laden, those who were burdened, and those who realize they cannot carry this load upon their own. They must trust Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that can only happen to those who are sick of their lives. Uh, they, are be- they are being uh, weighed down by their, their guilt. Uh, those in Jesus' day who were trying to uh, meet the requirements of, of the law. And, and by the way, uh, even though we don't have particularly those kind of Pharisees today, they're still existing symbolically. And there are so many people who are trying to make religion help them get to heaven. Will that help them? No. Yes. Jesus take my yoke upon you. And he said, for my yoke is easy. Now, we learned last week that that word easy is sometimes uh, translated in the Greek word is kind, better, it's good, or gracious. So the bottom line is this. There's nothing about the yoke of Christ that is not pleasant to the wearer. Those who take his yoke upon them will find that, in fact, is indeed easy. Now, uh, again, Jesus uh, said, I think we talked about this last week a little bit, that if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome to us. Because if you really love Jesus, you will really want to do what? Yeah, please him. And you do that by keeping his commandments. Now, we mentioned this last week, but I want to touch back on it again. Because there's a lot of false teaching out there who will teach you, or try to teach you, that as long as you live for Christ, life is a bed of roses. Is that true? No, that's a lie of the devil. So when Jesus says his yoke is easy, his burden in light, and as we share uh, these thoughts the last couple of weeks, we are not saying that the Christian life is always easy. Uh, or that when we become, we become Christ, uh, come to Christ as our Savior, then all of our troubles end. Now, the fact of the matter, when you come to Christ, in a real sense, some of your troubles just begin. Wow, that don't sound appealing, does it? But what did you say, Phyllis? Yeah, but it's true. It is true. Now, please understand something. Remember, a yoke requires two participants. And the reason the yoke of Christ is easy, it's not because life's a bed of roses, because now we're not trying to pull it alone. We've got who with us? Jesus Christ. And it makes it so much easier. Uh, Paul gave a warning to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Look what it says. Are you in 2 Timothy 3.12? Do I have the right verse? What kind of statement is that? Is that a maybe? Say it again. Yeah, for sure. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Now, listen to me, folks. We're living in a world, even in America, it's becoming more and more anti-Christian. You can talk about God all you want to in general terms, but you start speaking about Jesus Christ and how he's the only way to heaven, and you're going to get opposition. 
You're going to stir up hostility from the world. But again, wearing the yoke of Christ unites us with Him, unites us to Him. And it's a joy, it's a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. Keep that in mind. That's also a teaching of the Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 10. Thank you, Dan. Um, Anybody know who wrote this letter to the church at Philippi? Anybody know who it was? Tell me. Who wrote the letter of Philippians? Say it louder. Paul the Apostle. I've learned not to ask direct questions that way anymore. I did that one time and embarrassed a guy who had come to our church, had been a deacon for 20 years in another church. And he didn't know the answer to a simple question like that. And he acted like he forgot, but he just didn't know. So I said, Lord, I'll never ask a direct question anymore unless it's to Rick Martin. But other than that, no more direct questions. But anyway, the Apostle Paul is the one writing this letter. And by the way, that wasn't a trick question. I wasn't trying to uh, trick anyone, but it's the Apostle Paul. And notice what he says. Paul says that, speaking about himself, that I may know him. If Paul is writing, who's the him he wants to know? Jesus. Paul wants to know Jesus. But not only did Paul say, I want to know him, he said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of his resurrection. So I, I think my question would be there, uh, and Paul would know the answer, how powerful was Christ's resurrection. Say it again. So powerful did what? It raised him from the dead. So Paul tells the church at Philippi, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of the resurrection. And I think all of us say, you know what? That's what I want. I want to know him, Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. I mean, would agree with that. But then Paul says, I also want to know the what? The fellowship of his suffering. I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. But wait a minute. Isn't that kind of where we want to draw the line? Because Paul said, not only that, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. And then he says, I want to be made conformable unto his death. Surely Paul wasn't serious. He was very serious. 
So not only did Paul want to know the power of him and the power of the resurrection, Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, Paul was not talking about sharing Christ's death on the cross. That couldn't be shared because only Christ alone could do that. But Paul says, I want to participate with Christ as a believer in suffering for the gospel. Now let's pause here for a moment and let's reflect with a question. Again, who's writing this? Paul. So, evidently he had not suffered any. Say it again. Absolutely. And this wasn't the only time he was suffering. And that caught my attention. And, and Levinda, you're right. That's exactly where he was at. But you know what? He still wanted to know more. He wanted to know firsthand what it meant to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. We're not going to take time to turn there, but in Second Timothy, Paul is sort of writing his farewell, farewell letter. In chapter 3, I've fought a good fight, and I've kept the faith. And you read the entire chapter. Paul knew that within a few days, he was going to die for the cause of Christ. But you don't read any bitterness there, any sadness, any regret for what he had done for Christ. You know why? For Paul, it was a joy to experience the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. Now, I don't think that any of us could honestly say we have suffered for the cause of the gospel the way, the way Paul did. But the sufferings of Christ for us are those afflictions that we suffer as we serve Christ. Now remember, and Lavinda, I like what you said, he is writing from prison. So we know he'd already tasted suffering. But Paul was willing to suffer more in order to serve Christ, because Paul realized how much Christ had suffered for him. And I must confess, to my own embarrassment, I think sometimes I forget exactly how much Jesus suffered for me. And guess who else he suffered for? For the whole world, for all of us, yes indeed. And so Paul says it's through the fellowship in suffering, he was now being made conformable, coming like Jesus, in his death. And basically what this is telling us, how you and I, it explains how we can know Christ. We know him by participating in his death. 
Now, by the way, Christ became, God became flesh, lived here for 33 and a half years or thereabouts. He died. They buried him. And what happened three days later? He arose to never die again. And he walked, if you will, for lack of a better term, in a different way. Uh, when he was here on earth, now he could do what he wanted to do, of course. But if you saw him, he looked like what? Like anybody else, okay? Um, and, but yet, after the resurrection, we see him uh, walking in through the room, not through the door, but through the wall. Now, I know he could have changed that while he was here, but he didn't, you know. So things have changed. Now, we also understand that uh, according to Romans chapter 8, in verse 29, and we don't have one on our text tonight, Every believer is being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be conformed little by little into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, to be conformed to his death, we have to die to sin, and we have to die to the old nature. Now, that's kind of the topic we've been preaching about on Sunday morning, about our new life in Christ. But look in Romans 6.11. Look what Paul wrote. Uh, thank you, Phyllis. Uh, that uh, English word in the King James reckon, uh, it is an accounting term, and it means to put it on your account. Consider this to be absolutely true. If you are born again, Paul says, write it down in your ledger, you are dead unto sin. See yourself that way. But at the same time, while you see yourself dead to sin, see yourself alive to God through Jesus Christ. Now, listen, folks, very carefully. The moment we got saved, there were some things that went on that we cannot completely understand. Now, I never understood the why to begin with, all right? But it's a, tr- a transaction took place. And again, we can't completely understand this, but when Jesus died on the cross... We died to our former life. And so Jesus took our punishment, took my punishment, your punishment on himself. And because of that, once we receive Christ as our Savior, God looks at us as though we have died to sin and have been raised with Christ, along with Christ, to a newness of life. So hear me well. We have to die to ourselves before we can live to Christ. And that's why every time I get the honor to baptize somebody, I always say buried with them in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. And that is simply a picture, an outward illustration of what takes place inwardly 
the moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so, whenever we are united with Christ, whenever we are born again, we experience the power that raised Him from the dead. Now, don't, don't miss that. Paul said, I want to know the power of His resurrection. And here's what's interesting. In my own personal experience, and by the way, never take your experience over the Word of God, but I always thought, Lord, if I got saved, I'll never be able to live the Christian life. You know what? I was right. Not on my own power. But what I didn't realize, the moment I got saved, and the same is true for you, Jesus gave us the power to help us live a morally renewed, regenerated life. And that, my friend, is how you do it. Not on our own, but being united with the Lord Jesus Christ. So his resurrection, Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. His resurrection gives you and I His power to live for Him. But at the same time, His crucifixion marks the death of our old sinful nature. We are dead to sin. Paul says, consider that to be true. So we'll never understand, we'll never know the victory of the resurrection unless we personally apply the crucifixion. Let me pause here just for a moment. Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin. Make a mental note of it, write it down, whatever. But make sure you understand, you are dead to sin. Once you make that determination, the reason you need to make that determination, because Satan is going to try to tell you that you are not. And if we know what we know, that we are dead to sin... Don't let Satan discourage you. We are dead to sin. So I would infer from that, since we are dead to sin, we ought to live like what? Like we are. Like we we are. Okay, the church, you and I, making part of the church, we are the body of Christ. Who is the head of that body? Who's the head of the church? Jesus is. Jesus is. And because we are members of his body, the church, 
the scriptures teach that we'll also experience the same thing the head of the church, Christ, experienced. When he was here, the world fell head over heels in love with him. You're shaking your head no, Phyllis. No, they did not. They hated him. They persecuted him. And I want to tell you, folks, the same world that hated him in his day, the same world will hate us, all of those today who bear his image. And by the way, if you're not bearing the image of Christ, wherever you go, I would doubt your salvation. We are to bear the image of Christ. And don't get the wrong idea. Don't try to convince yourself. The closer I walk with Christ, the better it's going to get. The easier it's going to get. Not on your life. The closer we walk with Christ, the more you will suffer the hostility of Satan and the hostility of the world. Because my friend... Thank God for grace, because he snatched us out of the clutches of Satan, and my friend, Satan does not like it. And the closer you draw to God, to Christ, the more Satan hates it. So not only does the, the one who truly comes to Christ, the one who takes on the yoke of Christ, not only does that stir up the hatred of Satan and stir up the hatred of the world, but now all of a sudden, now hear me well, we begin to experience inward conflicts. Think about that. Now, Paul said, and we read it earlier, consider yourself, reckon yourself, but on your record, you are dead to sin. Get it in your noggin, right? Let it register there. You are dead to sin. But that does not mean that our sin nature is totally eradicated the day you got saved. I uh, wish it were, but it's not. I'm dead to the sin nature. I'm dead to sin. But how many know we still have a sin nature? Why would I say that? What, Dan? We're human. Why do you say that? We just are. It helped me. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember the last time I was. But anyway, I'm kidding about that. I'm kidding about that. All right. My dad said something about the other day. I said, yeah, I did buy a pencil with a razor on it one time. But anyway, uh, just kidding, all right? But isn't it true 
all of us here tonight can be as bad as we want to be? Isn't it true? You know why? Because that sin nature is still lurking around in our lives. And so that sin nature, that corrupt nature, and by the way, when did we inherit that, that corrupt nature? Say it one more time. The day you were born. Oh, you mean to tell me that when you were a little baby, you had a sin nature? <laughs> yeah, okay. it was standard equipment, right? Standard equipment. Now think about that. And, and those of us who have had grandchildren, it's hard for us to comprehend that. But even when they're first born, they're born with what? A sin nature. It, it comes with the product. So that, that corrupt, sinful nature, which belonged to us at birth, it's neither removed nor refined when we became a Christian. The only thing that happened that day, you got saved, we also took on the nature of Christ. And the sin nature still remains. Say it again. Yes, and it's fighting against it. I remember my first pastor, in the, and I confess I'm a little bit dense. I'm glad Pam's not in here because she would amen that. But it used to, I used to tell, him, tell this often when it came to this spiritual battle. And again, I was a relatively new Christian, didn't understand all about this. And, and he said it's like having two dogs in two cages. And he said, they're both there. But the strongest dog will be the one you feed the most. And what he was doing was making a spiritual application. Am I feeding my spiritual nature the most? Or am I feeding my new nature in Christ the most? And the one you feed the most will be the stronger, and the stronger will overcome the weaker. So it's not refined. It remains in us, and it remains unchanged. Now remember, how long has that sin nature been with us? Since birth. And... All those years before we were saved, we paid no attention to that. We thought it was natural. It didn't bother us, for the most part. But now that we're saved, we have become more conscious of His presence, and we begin to realize just how vile... That sin nature is. It's an awful thing. Because that sin nature that we were born with opposes every moment, every moment of the holy nature we received at the new birth. Galatians 5 verse 17.
The Bible says there's a war going on between the spirit and the flesh. And these are opposing entities. And Paul says the problem is the battle is so strong we find it difficult to do the things we want to do to please Christ. Now, my friend, I want you to know something tonight. That's a battle that goes on in your life every day, and it goes on in my life. No one is exempt from that struggle. And as a child of God, when I realize the darkness of my own heart and that conflict that my heart brings against the holy inclination I want to have, it brings deep grief to my heart. To my heart. My sister and brother-in-law were in first part of the week, and I went out to see him on Monday. And he pastored a church there uh, near Scottsville, Tennessee, just not too far from Bowling Green. Been there for a few years now. God's doing a great work there. And uh, I, I forgot, God has a sense of humor. He places weird people in all kinds of churches. And he was telling me uh, some of the ones that God had brought his way. And as we, we talk, and we, we kid a lot, and we share the scriptures, and uh, I said, Kent, you have to remember, God has called us to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. And the reason I said that, I could see his face turn red because of what someone in the church had done to him publicly in front of the congregation. And I wouldn't have liked it either. So we ended up, he walked outside, and, and my sister had to walk out, and he was going like this. And she said, what's the matter? He said, every time I talk to him, i got to repent. <laughs> and he, he said, he said, he's such a good man. Well, he's wrong about that part. Because there's only one good, folks. And they crucified him. Because all of us, all of us struggle. But Jesus said the heart is deceitfully wicked. That's my heart and that's your heart. And then he asked the question, who can know it? Who can know? The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Church of Galatia, of the, of the Galatia area, where as well, the Church of the Galatians, and talk about that battle going on. But you know how Paul knew the battle went on? It was going on in his life. Romans seven twenty four. Do you see a cry of desperation there? Yes. Now, most of you have read 
chapter 7 of Romans. You know what Paul's talking about, the things he wants to do. He doesn't do the things he didn't want to do. He finds himself doing. It's a battle going on. And I've heard some people who are trying to gloss over things, trying to say this is before Paul got saved. No, it was not. That battle was still going on in his life. So that battle goes on. So as we talk about Christ's yoke being easy and his burden light, we cannot affirm that as a Christian we live a life of the unclouded day. That's not true. But also we cannot give the impression that living for God is really envious. Folks, this is the best life we can live. Thank God. It's a joy to live for Christ. Because the bottom line is this. Yes, we're going to have our struggles. The world is going to stand against us. Satan will battle us. We will have inward conflict. But my friend, we are better off than any unbeliever. Far better off than any unbeliever. I'm not better than they are, but I'm better off than they are. Why? Because I know Jesus Christ as my Lord. Uh, Pop quiz, okay? Because I don't have the verse. Do you remember off the top of your head... What Paul said in Romans 8.28 about all things. You don't need to quote it. What's it? Okay. All things work together. For who? For our good. They mean they're good. Dan, that was really close. Okay, that's what, what Paul was meaning here. And... It's God's Word. It's God speaking. Holy Spirit inspired. God breathed. And the Bible says that all things work together for our good. What does that mean? Yeah, Joseph is a good example. Now, that's a promise from God. All things work together for the good. Didn't say it was good. It works together for our good. Now, remember, verse 28, write this down, is right before verse 29. And in verse 29, God wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's why all things work together for good. Not that we might feel happy or blessed, that's part of it, of course, but God wants those things to work out, so He's conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, all things work together for good. That's a promise. And no matter what we are facing, being yoked together with Christ, no matter what difficulty may come our way, no matter what persecution or hostility may come our way, we have to truly believe that God will never allow anything to come into our lives that is not meant for good. And whenever we can come to believe that with all of our heart, that all things work together for our good, 
My friend, you'll live life with a peace that passes all understanding. And you'll experience joys the unsaved could never, ever, ever, ever experience. So I say, let the world frown. Let the devil rage against us. But a clear conscience and knowing that God is smiling on my life. The communion I have with other believers in Christ and the assurance of my salvation, the assurance, the assurance of eternity forever with Christ, with God, my friend makes it worth it all. It makes it worth it all. So what is it then? And we spoke about, we talked about the yoke several weeks ago in in previous verses about this. And even the sound of a yoke doesn't sound pleasant, but the yoke of Christ is. But what is it about the yoke of Christ that counterbalances or offsets the enmity it brings, the suffering it brings, that would cause us as believers to to testify that the yoke of Christ is definitely an easy one. How could that happen? A couple of things. Those who find the yoke of Christ easy. Number one, they live their life from a principle of love. Second Corinthians five fourteen. Anybody got that one? Thank you, Dan. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. It's the second recorded letter we have. Many believe he wrote three. But by the way, we didn't lose one. We have what God wanted us to have. I have no doubt about that. But in both letters, he mentioned quite a few things he had been through. And the unasked question would be, well, Paul, why do you keep going? Why do you continue to suffer like you do? And what's Paul's answer? The love of Christ. You see, everything that Paul did, everything his companions and Paul did was to honor God. And not only did the fear of God motivate them, Paul says the love of Christ controlled their actions. The Greek word for constrains, it literally means to hold fast. So Paul says it was the love of Christ that was causing them to hold fast 
to certain courses of action. Because Paul and those who served with him, they understood that Jesus, out of his great love for them, had given up his life for their sakes. For Paul, that made the yoke easy. If we can just get a, a, at least a, a grasp of somewhat on all that Christ had given up for us, my friend, it will make our yoke easy. Now, by the way, I can only imagine, I've never had to wear one. Paul did, of course. Jeremiah did. Other prophets of the Old Testament probably did. But even on an animal, an oxen or a mule or whatever it might be, if they are wearing that yoke, if they try to resist, what do you think, what, how's that going to affect them? Say what? Yeah, it's going to make it worse. It's going to make that, bearing that yoke, Worse. So, it will hurt when we resist it. But take one made out of some kind of cast iron. If you pat it with enough wool and cotton, it'll be alright. And what makes the yoke of Christ easy for us, it's lined with love. It's lined with His love toward us. And our love toward Him. So whenever that yoke begins to chafe, whenever you, your net becomes, becomes sore, check out the lining. Check out the lining. Keep it right. And the yoke will not be a burden. Genesis 29, verse 20. What's that verse tell us? Yeah, that's because Laban was such an easy, honest taskmaster. Yeah. But it didn't matter. Jacob said it didn't didn't seem like a few days. Why? Because of the love he had And what a difference love makes. Whether for a stranger, a friend, a close relative. That kind of affection makes the hardest, most difficult joy easy. My yoke is easy. My burden light. But my friend, there is no love. I can compare that which the redeemed sinner bears to the one who died in our place. He loved us so much. And when I consider how much he loved me, that yoke is so easy to bear. And that's why we're willing to suffer. Because... We know it pleases the one who died for us. 
And even though we're not sure of the success of how we suffer, we know that the affection we have for Christ is reciprocal. And it gives us strength for the task at hand. 1 John 4.19 We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. And I want to remind us all tonight, we don't love with uncertainty. We know that Christ loved us before we had any love for Him. He loved me while I was yet a sinner. So much. He died for our sins. So what's one reason our yoke is easy? When we look at the love aspect of what Jesus did for us, how much we love Him, and how much He loves us. Let's stop there for tonight. We've got a little more ways to go. But my friend... Real quick question. Can Jesus lie? Nope. And if he said his yoke is easy and his burden light, is that true or not? Yes. Okay? We can certainly count on 